Jonathan T. Davis is a lifelong New Yorker who ran for borough president of Manhattan in 1981. He was outpolled by both Andrew Stein, who won the race, and by future Mayor David Dinkins, who came in second. Jonathan is old enough to remember the good old days, the bad old days, the return of the good old days, and the beginning of New York's present crisis. A non-practicing lawyer, he has served as a marketing consultant, classical concert presenter, and cultural activist. He's one of the smartest people I know. So, Jonathan, um, we have the we have the discussion between the two Jonathans tonight, and uh, I'm sure that um, one of us uh, will uh, emerge as the Jonathan or not. Who knows? Anyway, Jonathan, let me ask you this. Uh, we have your introduction. We know who you are. We know how much you care. And uh, I think you and I are both in a state of shock um, that uh, the pushback to uh, the recent mayor, um, Eric Adams, uh, initiative to get the homeless off the street. Um, you've lived here how many years now? 68. You've lived here 68. Okay. 68 was, years. In other words, my entire life. Okay. I was born in Brooklyn, so I'm a, a native New Yorker, but uh, my uh, affluent parents moved away to the suburbs when I was about uh, six, and I didn't return to New York till I was 23. 21, excuse me. So long story is next year or so will be my 50th year in Manhattan uh, and in the city. So I think the two of us can speak as authoritatively as possible that we're New Yorkers. We live here. This is the city we care about. We've been through the thick and the thin. I've been very upset and very concerned about the homeless situation in New York and the mentally ill for quite a while. Uh, it, it struck me as being um, inhumane um, the way these people are wandering around the, the streets. Uh, on January 20th, 22, before the mayor made this announcement, I wrote an article uh, about the homeless after there was a, a horrible incident in the city uh, where uh, Michelle Go was pushed in front of a, a train and, uh, and and killed by a mentally ill homeless person. And um, I remember I just, the incident. You do. Okay. I, I, I talk about the broken windows theory, um, going back to uh, James Wilson, who you now tell me you know. Well, I knew him. I was a student when he was teaching at Harvard, and uh, we had dinner once or twice, and I would meet with him during office hours. Okay. So his theory basically was that disorder leads to more disorder, which leads to more disorder, which leads to crime, more violent crime. Isn't that, in, in a nutshell, what he had to say? Well, basically, that, that the small things create an atmosphere in which people think they can get away with larger things. And right. if you if you address the small things... Number one, you're helping to stop the larger things. But number two, you're also creating an atmosphere in which people actually want to live. Right. Okay. So there's nothing more disorienting than to see really deranged people, um, homeless people, mentally ill people walking in the streets of Manhattan or, or, the, or the boroughs. It's very demoralizing. It's demoralizing to me. It's demoralizing for them. It's not that I'm put out by it, which I am, but that's not the point. It's depressing that we don't have a society that can help these people. And when you read what the mayor is saying now, he's saying we need to help these people, quote, there are longstanding gaps in our state mental health laws. Um, the subways are not a place where uh, mentally ill people should be living. We need to give them the help that they need. This is his, he's not trying to be punitive. He's trying to deliver help to them. How did we get to this point? You know, it came about step by step. And in your article, you talk about deinstitutionalization, 
which was the first step back in the 1970s. And oddly, it came about when there was a convergence of left and right, uh, not in terms of, of motivation, but in terms of policy. The left felt we shouldn't be putting people who are mentally challenged away in these institutions. And the right didn't want to pay for the institutions. And so they came together. And next thing we knew, there were people on the street. But it's developed since then because it's gotten worse. And it got especially worse during the pandemic when we had riots. And the police realized they could only get in trouble by taking action. So while having the police respond to every situation where there was a mentally ill person might not be the ultimate answer, at least something was being done to protect innocent people. But with the restrictions that were put on the police, no one was addressing the problem. And so what we have now are people, some of whom need to be institutionalized, some of whom who just need treatment, some of whom need group homes, some of whom should be in jail, and some of whom would behave themselves if they just saw that society were more ordered generally. It, we have to attack this thing on every, every front that there is. Okay. You know, I'm partially responsible for this um, in that when I was in college, I read the following books. I read Thomas Sazett's The Myth of Mental Illness. I read R.D. Lang's The Divided Self and his book called Knots. I watched Ken Kesey and read Ken Kesey's, you know, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And I watched mm -hmm. Frederick Weissman's Titicate Follies. Those books, as I write in the article and movies, all had an enormous influence in me. I was a psychology major at the time. This is 1971, 72. I was in Boston. And I actually came to believe that, you know, these mentally ill people, they, they were they were they were just different. They didn't need any help. They didn't need to be institutionalized. They didn't need to be locked up. And of course, you know, Tinnicut Follies and all the other books at the time and movies portrayed the mental institutions that they were locked up in as horrific. You know, they were they were drugged into uh uh, comatose states, you know, they were abused, they were put in straitjackets, they were you know, tortured by electric shock therapy against their will. So there was this great desire to put these people, you know, to get these people out of these mental institutions, to creed moors at the time, there was a pilgrim state. I mean, there were at one point, I think hundreds of thousands of New Yorkers locked up in very large institutions, you know, that they were like, seriously, you know, serious buildings, serious places. And then all of a sudden they were let go and they were or over time and they were supposed to like be into halfway houses um, where they were, you know, kind of be like <clears throat> given a room and maybe somebody to look in on them and, you know, give them their medication. But ultimately, in a very short amount of time, that didn't work. They didn't take their medication. There was no real treatment in these, quote, halfway or community based houses. And they started wandering the streets um, in a disheveled, incoherent state. And. 25 35 years later now you know we have we have a really serious situation where they're just not getting any help at all and nobody can put them back in the box so well i i think you're making a very valid point when you go back to those books from the 70s because everything begins with ideas if you start with wrong ideas and by wrong ideas i mean ideas that don't correspond to reality chances are you're going to get a bad policy. You're not going to hit on the right policy by accident. But it's even worse than that, because what you're citing are well-meaning people who just adopted policies because they didn't view reality the way we do nowadays. Uh, they adopted policies that didn't have good results. What we saw in the de Blasio years was something that I think is much worse and is epitomized 
by the placement of a homeless shelter on West 58th Street, one block from Billionaire's Row. Uh, I don't know what de Blasio was thinking, but it seems to me that this was not designed to help the homeless because they couldn't afford anything in the neighborhood. There were no social services in the neighborhood. There were no elementary schools in the neighborhood for their kids. What there was was a thumb in the eye of the rich people who lived a block away. And so I think that we reached a point, especially under the de Blasio administration, where what motivated the policy, sadly, was not so much the desire to help the people who needed help, but to almost get even with the people that were perceived as, it was viewed more as a class struggle, almost in a Marxist way. And wow. that led to where we are today. Right. Okay. One, ba- what for the for listeners, there is a wonderful book called A Fantasy Land by Kurt Anderson. And he has a whole couple of cha- pages of, devoted to what we were talking about, the deinstitutionalization. He mentions Sazis. He mentions R.D. Lang. He really, he, he in a very smart way, talks all about um, how this failure happened. And anybody wants to read Fantasyland uh, by, by Kurt Anderson really would, would do themselves a favor. You just mentioned something really interesting to me. You, I think you said a classist thing in a Marxist sense. Yeah, okay. yeah. Because okay. why else would you put a homeless right. shelter on Billionaire's Row? It makes okay. no sense if you're really trying to help the homeless. Okay. This is something that I I don't know why nobody else understands this or people don't talk about this. I think that the pushback and I could cite yeah, I have article after article in front of me, you know, all these liberal groups, these homeless advocates, lawyers, uh, mental health advocates, other politicians on the city council just saying this is barbaric and you know how could we do this to these people and this is terrible. I mean Somebody uh, named Sarah Messlin-Near from the New York Times actually went out on the streets to interview these some of these people and get their reaction to the mayor's policy. And of course, I'm laughing my head off because the people that I see every day in the subway and on the street, they don't answer questions from the New York Times. <laughs> New York Times, you know, inquiring uh, reporters, they don't answer any questions. They're completely insane and totally incoherent. And, you know, they're, they're, they're poor, the poor creatures don't even know where they are, let alone give a coherent answer so the the coherent answers she gets are 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 really pretty funny if you think about that's not the population that's being targeted jonathan help me here isn't it really elitist and racist to subject the the subway dwellers to the the shoveled threatening crazy homeless people that are walking through the subways uh isn't it really terrible that those people have to go through this when if you have wealth, you can take an Uber, you can take a taxi, you can drive your own car through the city, um, you know, you can hire a chauffeur if you want. I mean, really, isn't it really like racist and, and elitist to, to do that to people who just want to go home, you know, in the subways and, and are forced to take mass transit when everybody else? Absolutely. Okay. It's, Why does nobody absolutely. say that? Why is that is there not one person reporting on that on that element in that angle to this? When I, you and I both know that people can avoid seeing the homeless and avoid being pushed in front of a subway car by taking an Uber, but not everybody can afford that. I know, and okay. it's you raise a very valid point. I think that that will change. I think that we fell into a mindset during the de Blasio years, which was exacerbated during the pandemic and the total breakdown of law and order in the city that now we're emerging from. 
And I think Eric Adams' heart is in the right place. I do too. Uh, I think I wish things were moving faster and I'll bet he wishes things were moving faster. Yes. But it's, it's really, you know, there's an old saying about turning the ship around. You can't turn the ship around twice a day. It just keeps going for a few miles after you want to stop it. And the city of New York is a big ship and turning it around takes time and effort. So I think that he's trying to do the right thing. I just wish that other people would get on board with him and try to help out because the first responsibility is to help the totally innocent people. And these are the people you're talking about. Exactly. I have great sympathy for the mentally ill. Exactly. I have great sympathy for the down and out. I have great sympathy for all those people, and we should do something for them. But the first role of government is to protect the innocent, and we're failing at that. And if we don't succeed at that, then everything else it doesn't constitute success. I completely agree with you. Um, I do think the city is coming back, though. I, when I was here a week or two after the riots um, and, and, and the disorder, and I walked from um, the beginning of Bleecker Street to the end of Bleecker Street, I was crying. My heart was broken. The, the destruction, the, the broken glass, the windows, the, the boarded up buildings, it was, it was so depressing. I couldn't believe I was walking through my neighborhood. And I, I did the same walk two weeks ago, not a store is 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 uh, empty there is a new there's new there's new life on every single block and the entire thing is all filled in with people who have a dream and want to make something happen so i do think that eric adams is uh <clears throat> is is riding a wave here of, of of urban renewal and urban revitalization um do you i half agree with you i i had the same experience you did during the riots of walking around during the day and sometimes at night and seeing entire neighborhoods that were either destroyed or boarded up. Yes. And we've bounced back partially from that in the sense that many of the storefronts are occupied now, but many of them aren't. I think the, one of the problems is that uh, not everyone is coming back to the office eight hours a day, five days a week. And so all the little businesses that depend on people being in their offices in Manhattan yeah. can't make it anymore. Uh, the shoe stores, the umbrella stores, the, yeah. just the, you know, the, the, the little diners, uh, they need, you know, they can't, if people go to the office four days a week instead of five days a week, that's the equivalent of a 20% drop in the midtown business population. Now, if any business you're in, if you lose 20% of your customers, yeah. you might, you're, you're at risk of going out of business. So I think we really have to make people want to come back. They have to see the city as a place where they want to spend time. And that's happening. But until that happens more thoroughly, right. we're going to have a little bit of trouble. Okay, I, I accept that. And that's fair. Also, the, the downtown area is not a business area as much as Midtown. So the stores can fill in here a lot quicker because it's more of a, a lifestyle place, a place where it's more residential. Let's go and find out why do people want to fight Eric Adams' desire to get the uh, the mentally ill homeless off the street and get them help. What is their vision? Vision is precisely the right world because, word, because what I would say is they have a different worldview from people who want to approach the problem the way you and I do. They have a worldview in which uh, crime is the result of poverty, in which personal circumstances are the result uh, of oppression, uh, in which everything has an explanation that involves victimhood as opposed to just temporary circumstance. And so their policies grow from the way they view the world. And as long as they view the world that way, if you view the world as a place where the police are out arresting innocent people, 
Well, then, of course, you want to let them all out without bail because they're, the chances are they're not guilty. And we, we have seen where that false belief has led in terms of recidivism, not in the normal sense of people committing crimes when they get out of jail, but after they've been arrested and are let go before trial. So as long as we have large numbers of people in positions of power who have beliefs that simply aren't true, I'm not saying I disagree with them, I'm saying that they don't correspond to reality, we can't expect to have the sorts of policies that will keep everyone safe and enable us to actually give some help to the people who need help the most. Okay, that is really smart. Thank you very much. That is so well articulated. I'm going to grant you that that's true, that these people have that um, that worldview that um, society is responsible for for the crime, criminals and 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 homeless. And uh, so, you know, the underclass, I've written a lot about this, Jonathan. Um, there are about seven podcasts devoted to the uh, lumpen proletariat that I did with a Marxist professor. I actually do believe that. I believe that society, capitalism churns out um, uh, lumpen proletariat, the people that don't have any economic value, and that capitalism grinds people into poverty, and it always has and it always will. I think most other systems do too, but let's. I'm going to grant you that, or you're going to grant me that. It doesn't matter. <clears throat> but if you have somebody who is... Um, hasn't bathed in, in, in two years, is walking around uh, shoeless. And you're saying that that person, you know, because he may have been created that way through society, which he probably was, it doesn't ma matter, yes or no, he can remain that way because we don't want to give him help like the mayor does. That is, you're basically sacrificing that person. You're, you're saying you don't count because I have a bigger agenda. It, it, this is where I so don't understand um, with the disconnect between the, the philosophy that you just articulated and the practicality of just getting somebody help. Well, I know when you said you, you didn't mean me. You meant the people who actually believe that because I don't. And no, I know. We're on, the same, <laughs> we're, we're on the same page with this. But explain and to it, me it, why they don't want to help these people. They want, to, well, they want again, them out there as, a, as like a show place for no, a failed society? No, no I, I don't think they're that hard-hearted. I okay. think that they really believe what they're saying, but what they're saying happens not to be true. And so it leads to false policies. Let's look at this historically. Now, as you say, there was deinstitutionalization back in the 70s. Things got worse in the 80s. But in the 90s, things turned around. When we had Giuliani come in, and all of a sudden, we did follow... Uh, Wilson's and uh, George Kelling's broken windows theory. And we didn't solve the problem of crime. Uh, I'm sorry, we didn't solve the problem of poverty, but we did solve the problem of crime. And things continued to get better. There were homeless people out there. There were people who had mental difficulties out there. There were criminals out there, but we dealt with the situation. It really fell apart after Bloomberg left office not that I agree with everything he did in every dimension, but I think the city was a very livable place yes. during the Bloomberg years it was. and then became less livable under de Blasio. And what the difference between them, you can say, is in policy, but more fundamentally, the difference was in philosophy. And as long as you have a philosophy that leads to incorrect policies, you, you're not going to get anywhere. So that's why I think the, the, the people you're describing, like why did they believe what they believe? Well, it's all part of their general worldview. And until their worldview corresponds with reality, we have a very limited hope of taking the steps. What I would like to see us do, and I think this is what Eric Adams is doing, 
is he looking back and he's saying, okay, we faced a problem, something like this before, and we solved it. Let's go back to that fork in the road. Let's go back to the last time when we were doing things that actually worked and start to do them again. And he can't get away with doing all of it at once, Mm -hmm. but he's trying. And I give him credit for that. Okay. Um, how much resistance is he going to make going to meet in New York City? Uh, the city council is all going to be opposed to him. Don't people in the neighborhoods that that the city council represents, don't those people want to see the uh, the mentally ill get help? You know, it's funny. You don't remember that old expression? Um, I think a conservative was a liberal who was mugged. How does that go, John? It's, it, yeah, it, it was a conservative as a liberal who was mugged by reality. I think it was just mugged. I don't think it was by reality, but uh, isn't there a reality here? I'd like to go back to a question you posed. Don't the people who live in the neighborhoods where these problems exist, which nowadays are all neighborhoods, don't they care? And the answer is they do. But if you look at the participation rates for voting in New York, um, there are all sorts of structural reasons for it. But our, our civic representatives are chosen by very small fractions of the electorate. Yeah. I remember uh, during the de Blasio years, there was a year, uh, there was one cycle where he won for mayor with, uh, I might be a point or two off, but something like 17% of the total electorate. In other words, only about <laughs> half the people turned out and he got, you know, slightly more than 40% of the half. So maybe it was like 20%, but uh, it, it wasn't as if there was a landslide. It wasn't as if we had wide participation right. uh, in, in the electoral process. People feel that there's nothing they can do about this. And so they worry about protecting themselves. I think half the people with illegal guns don't have them to commit crime. They have them for self-protection. Yeah, right. The the uh, the, uh, the Getz, uh, what was his first name? Bernie Getz. Bernie Getz, right. You know, the person who 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 defended himself, you know, in, in the subway. That's very possible that that's the case. Okay. So who... Who's going to win this? Is Eric Adams strong enough to, to to do this? And by the way, everybody is saying that we don't have the places to put these people. Um, you know, this is ridiculous. There's nowhere for them to go. We have we don't have any um, institutional you know beds. Um, and he's saying, well, you know, we do. We'll try to find some. I mean, you, you have to start somewhere. It's obviously they're not going to sweep five thousand people off the street tonight. You know, they're going to have to start with one or two or three and find some find some place for them. And I'd also, by the way, I don't know why the police have to be involved in this, as other than as a bystander. I mean, I really think social workers. You know, this is a big thing. Everybody's saying the police are not equipped for this. They're going to shoot these people. You know, violent confrontations take place all the time with the mentally ill, and I believe that that. That's true. I don't think the police are the right people to take care of this. I think that they should be truly bystanders. Um, and and, and when, I, when I do see outreach teams in my neighborhood trying to help some of these people, they are not police um, forward. They are, well, in fact, social I, I, worker forward. I but, think that the situation varies. There are some people who are simply down and out. The situation's pathetic. They need a social worker. They'll go right. along peacefully. They go. There are other people who have confronted become violent immediately. There are some people who are violent right. in the first place, and that's how they come into the view of the system. And in most of these places, in most of these instances, for right. the protection of the other service providers, you're right. You need to have the police present. You're absolutely you know, can, right. You're right. There was a time when there were so many attacks on EMS workers that a police car was dispatched every time an ambulance went out. That I don't believe that's the policy any longer, but uh, there were. I, I'm thinking back 30 years where 
the ambulance would arrive and the EMS workers wouldn't begin to help someone until the police arrived just for their own safety. I can't blame them. So yes, we do need these other services, but we need a whole range of services. And ultimately it comes down to the police to be there to protect the people Agreed. who are providing Agreed. those services. You're, you're absolutely right. I mean, if you just walk down the street in New York, you will see violently crazy people on a regular basis and everybody's crossing the street. You know, right. they, when, they're, when they're coming down the street, you, you walk across the street, you know, you walk as far away as you can. Um, you know, they're screaming, yelling, they're flailing about. I did a little research, Jonathan. You know that we have animal protection laws in New York State? Mm-hmm. That are, that are seriously more humane than the human protection laws. Do you know that if you mistreat animals and you find them you know, wandering around or there's somebody that's not feeding them or somebody who's starving them or they're, they're, they haven't, they're, they're in ill health, do you know that like, they, you have to take them in and there's a law that says you can't mistreat animals? We actually have better protection for, the, for, for a, a, a mangy dog than we actually do right now for human beings. That's not a joke. Well, I, I I understand what you're saying, and it's a shame. Yeah, it's uh, so, again because the the treatment of animals doesn't involve the same worldview consideration. It's oh, just a practical thing. It's it's you know we we can have agreement with people on both sides of the political aisle about what to do when a dog seems injured or doesn't have something to eat because there's no political dimension to it. You don't uh, you know a Marxist and a conservative could have the same view on on helping a stray puppy. Uh, but all of a sudden, when there are human beings involved, then it becomes a matter of political philosophy. And that's when you start getting the, the crazy ideas about people having a right to harm themselves or be a danger to others. Wow. I had no idea that it really you think it's really comes from that philosophy. Um, I is, think is it everything, li- ulti- everything ultimately yeah. comes from ideas. Okay. Is it, is, is it, it's funny. It's almost sounds like the Marxists meeting the libertarians. I mean, if you think of the libertarian philosophy, it's like, you know, there shouldn't be a government. Uh, everybody's on their own. Why would there be any intervention? And if you, you know, but the Marx philosophy is like, these people were created by capitalism. And so, you know, they, they, they're victims. And so they, they need to be left alone or something. Is this where the Marxists meet the, the libertarians in a sense? Well, it, yeah, it, it goes back to something I said at the outset from the 70s with deinstitutionalization. You had the left and right coming to the solution. Right. You did say that, right. Deinstitutionalization, even though they had very different views of what the ultimate problem was. And so, yes, you can find that Uh, with the libertarians. Sometimes you can reason with them because you can say to them, test this against reality. It just doesn't work. And if they're sincere, they'll say, "Okay, if it doesn't work in reality, then we'll change our view. The problem with the Marxists is you're challenging their entire worldview. You're not just challenging this one measure, this one circumstance. You're challenging the way they view the world operates. And so it's a harder thing to overcome. And as you said, when, you know, God forbid something bad happens to people who think that way, then they are the the proverbial liberal who is mugged by reality. You would think so, wouldn't you? I mean, the tragedy of uh, of somebody being pushed in front of a subway car by a mentally ill, you know, homeless person or a disturbed person is is just life shattering. I mean, and and it happens and it continues to happen. Okay. Mm -hmm. Why do people who have this philosophy that you're talking about, the Marxist philosophy and all of it, the, why do they run for city council? <laughs> That's a good question. I think that the reason is that the people who think that way 
look to government to solve every problem. Whereas the people who don't think that way don't think about government that much except when it affects them directly. And instead they go out into the private sector and they try to do something. (laughs) I I mean, I really think that's that's the explanation, that there is a preferential uh, movement of people who have that Marxist view thinking that government was the system is the problem, so government is the solution. Whereas the people who feel the other way say, well, you know, if I don't have enough money, I'll go out and get a new job. Fascinating. And, and then every once in a while you have a Bloomberg that like from noblesse oblige decides to, um, you know, do, do government instead of, you know, making even more billions. Is, is, and and, yeah. and, and it's, it's shocking. We were all surprised like a Rockefeller, you know, before before Bloomberg in New York State. Is that is that what happens? Well, that's what happens once in a while. I think that uh, <laughs> Rockefeller is a good example of someone who I think was extremely public spirited. I think that Bloomberg, uh, I agree with much of what he did, but I think he didn't, he paved the way for the next person to be a de Blasio because he didn't have right. a loyalty to either party. He didn't right. create a, an organization of his own. It was more après moi le déluge. You know, it, it, yeah. he, he didn't have a succession plan in place, which if you're in any line of work nowadays, you're taught the first thing you do is start grooming a successor or a group of people who might be uh, from which you might find a successor. He didn't do that. And I think there were other things about which he was just simply wrong and tried to impose his own point of view. But I don't want to give the wrong impression on the basics, on keeping the, the fiscal house in order and on keeping the street safe. He, he did a wonderful job. So you okay. know, give credit where credit is due, but oh, be honest sure. about someone's shortcomings. Oh, sure. I, I, that's my assessment, too. It's a very, very valid assessment. You know, and I, I think he did know how, how things could get out of control. That's why he fought for that third term, right? I mean, mm. you know, he, he, he's like the Bob Iger. You yeah. know, it's like, this, is, this isn't this is going to work yeah. out so well. I, well better, you know, that, I better stay around. To be, to be honest, it was the third term that soured me because uh, it no yeah. one person is so important. And we should never uh, politically think that any one person is that important. That's a dangerous thing. And if he had done the job the right way for the first two terms, in other words, being either a Democrat or Republican or creating some third organization and grooming successors, then he wouldn't have uh, had to have sought a third term. There would have been a, a smoother transition of power and the city wouldn't have declined the way that it did. Okay, so Jonathan, let's leave. Let's leave for the minute the for the homeless situation. I think we've discussed it. We've you've, you've been so articulate about it. I'm passionate about getting these people help. Let's let's go to the overall big picture, um, for a minute. Rents are high. Uh, young people seem to be moving to the city like there's no tomorrow. Borough after borough is gentrified. Uh, you know, it, it just is shocking. Like how much uh, the, the city has changed in, in in the last 15 years in terms of neighborhoods that were once were war zones uh, are now, you know, $2 million for a brownstone. Um, people are living four to, a, you know, an apartment and paying $2,000 each or $1,800 each to, to live in, you know, in, in Bushwick, et cetera. It looks to me like the, you know, the rents are still sky high, apartment sales may be a little softer now, but there, there's no there's no um, fire sales, that's for sure, uh, in any of the apartment buildings that are desirable. Um, so what what is the, your, your sense of where this is headed in terms of uh, the, the future of the city in the next few years? I think that two things 
come, come to mind. The first is what is going to be the nature of work? Uh, what was New York historically? It was a port and it was a melting pot. And in terms of being a port, well, that, that moved over to the Jersey side and sure. within the city, it moved to the Brooklyn side. And we, we used to be the busiest port in the world. Now we're not even yep. the busiest port on the East Coast. So that's right. changed. So what, what are we now? We can be an informational city. We can be the sort of uh, city where there are businesses, where people have to have face-to-face -face interaction. And if that's the case, then they have to come to the office. If they don't have to come to the office, they can relocate to other places uh, where they just get on Zoom and then they pay lower taxes or in some states, no taxes. So I think that's the first consideration. What is going to be the nature of work? And no one knows yet. No one knows whether the Zoom thing was a, it's not a flash in the pan, it's not going away entirely, but whether it will be as big a factor as it was when it was absolutely needed. Uh, the, the second thing uh, after, uh, you know, after whether people are going to come back to the city is whether middle class people will be able to have a decent life in the city. Can they send their kids to the public schools? Do they feel safe when they're walking in the street? Can they get from point to point uh, without moving at two miles an hour in traffic? Uh, can they get there safely? So we have to focus on those two things, one of which is within, within the control of government, the provision of city services, but the other of which is dictated by forces that are, uh, well, that the city council has no real, no real jurisdiction over. So right now, my answer would be, uh, let's wait and see. Interesting. Um, it's possible, Jonathan, that um, the culture of the city, the energy of the city, even if you could work from Rochester or uh, Altoona um, on Zoom, you don't want to. I mean, um, there's so, I mean, I'm, I've been here, you know, 50 years, as soon as I could come back from college, I, 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 I moved right back to New York city. And I, every day that I'm here, I'm in, in a state of like, um, shock at how much energy there is and how much I enjoy the place. I, I never, never stop uh, being amazed at the, at the, at the excitement of being in New York city. I don't think that that's going to go away, even if you could work somewhere else. I, I think that the culture here is going to draw people um, no matter what. Well, I, you know, you and I both feel that way, uh, okay. which is why we're both here. Uh, <laughs> but as, as that that will means we will always be churning the young people, the first job out oh, of college, yes, uh, yes, college yes. the first job out of graduate yes. school, something yes. like that. But for the overall success of the city in the long run, you need a city in True. which middle and upper middle class people can survive. Rich people will always be able to live here and insulate themselves yeah. from the problems. Right. Poor people will end up here because they have nowhere else to go. Uh, young people moving in and spending 80% of their salary on rent for two or three years, that, that'll happen too. But that's not the heart of the city. The heart of the city has to be a group of people who are here for the long run, send their kids to public schools, ride public transportation, hold jobs within the city. And that's that's where I think the jury is out as to what's You're going right. to happen. Let's let's wrap up. Thank you very much. Um, let's see where this goes. I think, uh, you know, I, I'm going to bet with Eric Adams. I, I think that, you know, he, he's going to win this. Um, I don't think that it's going to be rolled back. I think that they're going to, you know, the legal challenges will be met. 
I think that the the the, the wind is behind his back in terms of the 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 zeitgeist of the city and i'm hopeful that it is and i also really truly hope that some of these very very ill people can you know get some help and 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 live a more dignified better life jonathan thank you very much you are such an astute observer of the city and a lover of the city and such a smart person i really appreciate it thank you very 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 much come back and we'll talk about something else okay thank you jonathan listeners Thanks again for tuning in to Out of the Box with Jonathan Rousseau. Your input is valuable to us, and we'd really like to hear from you. Please send us an email anytime with feedback at ootbwithjrusso at gmail.com and follow us on our Twitter page, ootbwithjrusso. Listeners, believe it or not, we're on Instagram. Only about 15 years too late, but better late than never. Please follow us at ootbwithjrusso on Instagram. This has been a copyrighted production of Grapevine Incorporated. All rights reserved.